may have a magnificent resonance to my voice tonight. Yeah. Gee, gee. That's what comes of a pair of good earphones. Always. Uh, we'd better uh, give a disclaimer here for those of you who like to be forewarned. And there are those of you, of course, who do. Uh, personally, as far as I'm concerned with life, the, the, le- the less you know about it, the better off you are. Uh, you, you'll vote happily and you'll do everything much different. And so uh, I uh, say for those of you who demand to be forewarned, this uh, program which uh, will follow is for women and children. All grown-up, adult-type deep thinkers are just better later. It's just no miserable governments. It's another one of them rotten shows that they got on radio. What a ridiculous business. Silly, It's one big circus. Oh, well, let's uh, continue the circus motif, if uh, you don't mind. Uh, circus motif number two. Plug it in there. All right, uh, turn up the gain there. Circus motif number two, uh, first note. London, February 27th, a new art magazine will devote an issue to self-destructive art. Now, I think this uh, is the kind of art which is probably more indicative of our time. It's just the way it is. We're all self. Self-destructive art. That art where, quote, sculpture drops to bits, masterpieces drip away to nothing, and some of the finer pieces blow themselves up, also including the spectators, the Observer <laughs> reports. The magazine, now here's, here's the biggest uh, hooker, though, of the fantastic Gallimaufry we live in. The magazine will participate in auto-destruction, and it is salute to self-destructive art, by treating the pages of this issue with a chemical, quote, so that copies will disintegrate in about four weeks, leaving plenty of time even for the slower readers. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> you know, what difference? No, 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 no. Everybody gets mad. Says, oh, what nuttiness. Oh, wow. What insanity. What ridiculousness. And I say, no, no. no that's it's all a big game. What difference does it make? Now, really, seriously, looking at it on a wider screen, what difference does it make? Uh, I mean, it's all... Uh, it, this is the circus, you know. And people come out. They, they drive their little cars... They blow up, and, and the uh, band strikes up down there at the far end of the tan bark. And you can smell the popcorn. You can smell the camels coming out. What difference does it make whether or not the masterpieces blow themselves up or not, really? <laughs> I, You know, it's all snow in the yard wide, so would you please give us a little uh, a salute to uh, the Gallimaufry, please? That's it. Oh, that's magnificent Gallimaufry music there, friends. Yes. Grimly, Miss Gwendolyn Barter watched from her car in Glean, England, as the gaily-dressed fox hunters cornered their quarry in a hole in the ground. Gwendolyn Breen, she figured she had had enough. The 61-year-old member of the League Against Cruel Sports sprinted to the scene and threw herself into the hole from which the huntsman had been trying to dig the fox. Angry members of the Thanet and Hearn Hunt Club yanked her out three times, but Gwendolyn kept climbing back in. Finally, the exasperated hunters called police who hauled Miss Bata out for good and took her away. The fox was 
allowed to escape. I can bear to watch hunting from horseback. I can even see why it is exciting, said Miss Barter. But I thought that the way they were digging out that fox yesterday was nasty. I jumped into the hole to stop them. Oh, what happened to Tom Jones? You imagine that big scene in Tom Jones? <laughs> now, that's my idea of the way a movie should be made. You know, the what they call a lusty, hard-hitting... 18th century rollicking comedy of Tom Jones and the you know the fantastic scene with all the horses and the the uh, the fox hunting scene where they're all galloping over the countryside and it's gray and it's murky and they're going over the hedgerows and I would love to see that moment just when the dogs all close in and you see this elderly lady sitting in the hole she says no you won't you will not do that while I'm around Please salute old Miss Barter, my judge. Uh, that ain't all. I mean, it's all going on all around. You know, today, uh, maybe maybe the reason I'm in a, in a peculiar kind of uh, cinnamon mood, uh, it's not bitter, it's not sweet, it's kind of a you know funny mood. I'm walking along Lexington Avenue today. Now, this is a hip in street. I mean, if you're a certain kind of hip and if you're a certain kind of in, it's not, it's not at all hip. It's so, well, it's not at all hip or in the way the village is. Very different kinds, hip and in. This is where the real in, you know, the in people that publicize themselves as in hang around, you know. Oh, yeah, they, they constantly write columns about each other telling, the, you know, the world that each other are in. And so, as you, as you walk along uh, that, that area, it's, uh, it's in the 50s. Uh, on uh, Lexington Avenue, it's the part where, where you know, the, the people never go. That is, the the, uh, the tourists never show up. The guys from Jersey never show up there. Although one of the greatest scenes I've ever seen on Lexington Avenue in the fifties, uh, one afternoon I am walking along and I see these 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 totally out of place people. I mean, completely out of place. If you know anything about Lexington Avenue, this is the world capital of skinny pants. It is the world capital of fluffy sweaters, and and uh, believe me, uh, uh, l- let me tell you, even even the poodles on Lexington Avenue are having identity troubles. And uh, <laughs> oh yeah, it's that kind of a place. So I see these these totally out of place people, human beings, completely displaced, and I'm walking along behind a couple of them. They're giant, fantastic shoulders. And their their clothing just doesn't quite fit. Their pants are a little too long or a little too short, and they've got real short haircuts and real squat necks. And I I walk around the two of them. The two big guys covering the whole sidewalk. See, so I walk around them, and I see two more coming wearing the same jacket. They all have the same color jacket. They're maroon jackets, and they're coming towards me. And they're all around me. And they're sort of looking. One says, "Hey, look, Mac." And the other one say, hey, man, here's a girl. Hey, girl! And the girl looks, you know, she's not used to having people who'd be interested in girls on Lexington, you know, not that way. They're great to take pictures of and write articles about. But, you know, hey, girl, he hollies. And I'm walking in the middle. I suddenly realize I'm in the middle of the, of the Washington Redskins football team. And they have just disgorged themselves from a giant bus. And they're wearing their red jackets. They wear red jackets, you know, kind of maroon jackets, this Washington Redskins. And there, there was blood in their eye. You know, they were there. They were here to give it to the Giants, which incidentally they did the next day, if you know anything about that game. 
And they're walking around with their thick necks and their cauliflower ears and their crew cuts, you know. Hey, Goyo! And I thought, boy, there's going to be a lot of males scared around here for about the next 20 minutes. They're going to write angry pieces. About, you know, I, I, that's another... <laughs> That's another thing about about that 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 new kind of uh, in world. It's a part of the Gallimaufry. Is the is the uh, is the dilettante way that they write about non dilettante activities. You ever read the uh, the essays that these magazines write about pro football? Well, I'll tell you, it bears about as much relationship uh, to to pro football those articles they write as uh, the average science fiction writer sitting there writing about what's happening on Galactic 42, Star 29, Centaur, Alfuri, 1628, knows about the life of that planet. It's all, it's all imagination in the yard wide. <laughs> and, and, you know, so, much of, so much of that is part of our life today. We have, we have little thin girls writing uh, hard-bitten pieces about the stock car racing. In the in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I think I told about the time when this lady called me. Did I ever tell you about that time? From one of the top uh, sport magazines, this lady called me and she says, "Mr. Shepard," and I said, "Yes, I understand you know something about cars." And I said, "Well, a little bit. I can, you know, I know how to work the gear shift, and I know how the cigarette lighter is over on the right there, and uh, I know how to. Yeah, I know a little bit about cars." She said. I understand that one time you even raced a few cars. And I said, well, I don't talk about it. That was a dull, dark period in my life, and an expensive one, honey. And I don't talk much about it. Uh, actually, I still got a bad back from that. And she says, well, I am writing a piece, a major article. I'm writing one on stock car racing. What's the difference between stock car racing and sports car racing? Oh, holy smokes. What is this, you know? <laughs> well, it's all, you know, it's all part of it's a yard wide. Of the, the, what difference does it make? And it's all gone. It's at the bottom of the birdcage tomorrow. It doesn't really matter one way or the other. And uh, although at the time it, it's going on, it seems to be so important and so exciting. Uh, you know, have you, have, you ever, have you ever thought about the things that you got mad about and you were yelling and screaming about the, a year and a half ago? I'm a, I'm a really, I'm, I, I, I admit this, I'm a congenital yeller. Oh, I'll tell you, I go, I stalk around my office and I knock over the plants and the people and I bust the windows and yell. And I'm yelling about some play I saw. And I'm, I'm out of, you know, my eyes are bugging and popping out or some book I read. There's some article I read. And I'll come in out. Did you see what they said in the post? Holy smokes. Now, look, take a look at this. What kind of idiotic. And I'll go on. And, and you know, people walk around. Guys will be carrying uh, cups of coffee and other people will be watering the plants. They said, what's the matter with a nut over there? What's, what's, what's the nut? And then, I, you know, five minutes later, it's all gone. And then 20 minutes later, again, I'll be walking. I'll say, I see a sign. Look, oh, <laughs> look, at, look, at that. Look, look, look at that sign. Look, look, oh, wait a minute. Wait. Would you believe it? Look, look, look at that. Look at that. The, the, oh, gee. <laughs> the, the, your benefactor, Household Loan Incorporated, noise, you know, oh, how can I get away with that? No, oh, 20 minutes later, I'm purple and I'm falling down the stairs and I'm going up the wrong escalator at Macy's, you know, yelling and hollering. And, and <laughs> five minutes later, it's all over again. And I say that's what life is about, arguing. 
<laughs> really, it is. It is ultimately. Uh, it, it's about our. Listen, listen now. Here's uh, speaking of the Gallimaufry. Bring me up a little Gallimaufry music here. Uh, for those of you who would love to move into quiet, uh, sensible Pennsylvania, out there where the Pennsylvania Dutch uh, work and walk around and make noodles. And, you know. Yeah, well, all right. So you don't think the Pennsylvania Dutch. I'm just trying to be nice. Here's a little note uh, from a kid in the Pennsylvania Dutch country. It just shows you what will happen to you when you're sitting there and there's nothing to do and there's straws sticking out of your ears. It says a uh, Pennsylvania Dutch hobby would have been useless recently in the northeastern blackout. Sherwood Lutz collects used flashlight batteries. Uh, when asked by our reporter, he says, I have saved old batteries as long as I can remember. I keep them in a drawer. And they began to accumulate, and so I began to save them. His collection uh, now numbers 36 batteries, including corroded ones. He tries to save two of each kind and has various sizes. He has pen lights, C and D, flashlight, lantern, dry cell, and radio batteries. The oldest one is a corroded 1953 flashlight battery with a lead bottom. Uh, he has no purpose in mind for this. Uh, he once attempted to take one apart and, quote, I found I couldn't. All I know is a corrode, he said. End of article. Well, all right, kid, that's as good as any. Put it there, kid. As an old, as an old battery collector myself, I, I, uh, I like to hear that the art is still continuing. I, uh, how many of you ever, when you were kids out there, you had this idea that if you collected, if you, if you got a battery, you know, certain kinds of batteries. Uh, the dry cell battery, as a matter of fact, you know the big one, the big uh, dry cell battery with the with the binding post on the top. That there was a deadly, uh, oh, a, a deadly lethal compound in those batteries. Do you recall such a myth? That if you weren't careful, there was something in those batteries that would kill you if you got it on your hands. Yeah, it would cause all kinds of awful things and. Uh, and uh, I remember, I remember taking these batteries and cutting the bottom off and putting this stuff in the cans, and figuring one day if things got rough enough, I could poison the whole neighborhood. <laughs> well, of course, that that also is connected with the time that I I was I I got myself a Ford uh, a Ford Magneto a coil. You know, you remember what what they used to call them? They had there was a coil. Let's put it this way: what did they call that thing? It was called a. Uh, not a magneto. It was a, yeah, it was a magneto. It was a it was a coil, Ford coil. Magneto had had condensers in it, had uh, that you could unroll, and it came in a wooden box. Yeah, that's it. It was a, a flat wooden box that had a relay on the top. And I uh, uh, I went through a phase where I was collecting first tin foil, and there were there was tin foil in this, all wrapped up, and wound up in these condensers, and it also had wire in it. So this is a fantastic thing to collect. And then one day it occurred to about five kids in the neighborhood, I wonder what that coil is for. It's not just for saving tinfoil. It's not, you know, they didn't make that so you could collect it to save tinfoil. They didn't make it so you could collect the wire out of it. And uh, one of the bigger kids says, well, you see, that's a coil. You connect the battery across that, and it, it, it amplifies the battery. It makes it powerful. And so I connected my dry cell across this beautiful Ford coil that I collected, and I get a shock. <coughs> Boy, it really works. Well, <laughs> I wound up by getting a hold of a transformer, which I put across that, and producing something like 45,000 volts. 
or roughly the equivalent of the high voltage on your best television sets today. Well, I, I don't even want to go into the, to the, uh, to the fantastic trauma that this resulted in. Uh, in fact, I'll never forget the time my Uncle Carl tried to repair a radio. Uh, we had people in our house that did their own work all the time, and he was ionized, as a matter of fact, uh, later. And I remember that purple cloud hanging in the darkness there over the fern plants, and they had a little memorial there. That's where Uncle Carl had learned how to repair radios. But uh, each man picks his... Uh, speaking of bad radio, this is WOR AM and FM, New York. Hit the gazebo there. The New York Times has no Hollywood gossip column, but it does give you something that's much more interesting. Real news of movies and the people who make them. Here's Peter Bart, Times reporter in Hollywood. The job of writing about movies out here is to find the important things that are happening, which might be interesting to the more literate moviegoer. Now, this doesn't mean you have to wait for a professor to write a screenplay before you do a story. I may cover a social event that is typically Hollywood. Because the Times reader wants uh, an objective view of the humorous, lotus-eating sort of stuff, as well as the um, elements of art that you get in the cinema. But generally what I try to do is to write about movies being made that are of more than routine interest. That's the New York Times. If you're without it, you're not with it. For home delivery, call Murray Hill 7 700 That's MU7-0700. Be careful of anybody that calls movie cinema. Let's see. Uh, think of Woolmouth when you want suits, top coats, overcoats, slacks, and sport jackets that are made to your order and made to your measure. Why? Because Woolmouth made-to-measure menswear is your guarantee of looking your best at realistic prices. But uh, what do you think of when you want custom shirts? Well, Woolmouth, too. They have a wide choice of collar styles, all kinds of shapes for your face, the gorilla model, the length of your neck, styles that include the hard-to-find high-rise Tony Curtis back and the low-slope uh, Anthony Newley neckband, the long and short point widespread button-down tab in exactly your size and sleeve length because Woolmouth custom-made shirts are manufactured to your exact measure. That's Woolmouth, W-O-H-L-M-U-T-H. Check your phone book under Taylor's for his address. Let's see, in Huntington, Long Island, there's one at the Huntington Shopping Center. And in Comac, is that Jersey? Comac, Comac, is that out on the island? In Comac, at the Comac Plaza Shopping Center, ask for Charles. I repeat, at the Comac Shopping Center, ask for Charles. The money button, please. Hit it hard. Let's go. Like the taste of real draft beer? Now you can take it home with you. Peels did it. Put real draft beer in 12-ounce cans. Try it yourself. You'll agree. It's really draft beer in a can. And it needs no refrigeration until you're ready to drink it. The only thing we didn't put in the can is the atmosphere of your favorite tavern. Listen, the atmosphere of my favorite. The only tavern that I really know about. I'm not. I'm a non-tavern type, and the the atmosphere that I know. Let, let, remind me to tell you that story sometime about how I used to get up at five o'clock 
of a Saturday morning and go down and clean Flick's Tavern with Flick. Every morning, me and Flick, we had this job. We got a buck apiece. Have you ever cleaned up a steel town tavern? A steel mill town tavern at 5 in the morning after Friday night? Whenever they say the atmosphere of your favorite tavern on that commercial, I think of that. I smell that. I taste that atmosphere. And, you know, you walk along the bar. I better not go. <laughs> that goes along. <laughs> There's probably somebody out there drinking beer. I don't want to spoil it. Let's see. We have uh, Rover with us tonight. Speaking of automobiles. And uh, I understand that the Rover people have uh, once again been the sensation of about five big major automobile shows in Europe in the past month and a half. You know, they have them through February and January over there. And our big show is this spring. It's going to be at, at the uh, uh, down here at the, uh, oh, what do they call this big place down here in the Centerville Plaza. Is that what you just said? Fine. All right. Anyway, it's good. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're the big show here in New York this spring, and uh, they're going to have the Rover Turbine there. But uh, that's a long way off in the future. And for those of you who are interested in buying a car this year that will be around for a long time and will have relevancy a few years from now, you know, I, I hear them talk more and more about safety in automobiles. And if you're interested in the one car in the world that is recognized to be a top uh, safety design piece of equipment, this is it. This is the Rover 2000. They don't have safety accessories on this car. This is a safe automobile. The accessories have nothing whatsoever to do with the safety of the structure and the design of a car. And this is the Rover 2000, which is made for that business all the way. Okay? Back to life. You know, whatever, whatever they do mention, though, the the, uh, the atmosphere of your favorite tavern, they use the words atmosphere all the time. How many of you remember a couple of years ago when there was this this unbelievably bad experiment that was made uh, in, in the motion picture world? Do you remember Smell-O-Vision? Do you remember that? Well, I got, a, I got a ticket to this. This is kind of a historic thing. Yeah, it's a kind of historic thing. Nobody talks much about it anymore. But... Uh, I got a, a, a press ticket to this thing, and I went down there in the middle of the afternoon. Everybody was all dressed up, and uh, it was one of these full-dress-type previews, and they had all the official people there who were in this movie, and there were guys wearing black tie and stiff white shirts and all that. We all walked in there like, like we were serious people, you know. <laughs> That's the nutty part of it. Everybody was, was nodding and bowing to each other. There were guys with red faces, with gray hair, you know. They had official ladies with fur coats and black cars kept pulling out in front. Then we had big golden, uh, gigantic golden invitations that were embossed and had seals all over it. And they gave us a program and the whole bit. And that little did we realize, not only was this movie wired for smell, it really smelled. Every possible way this movie smelled. But we, we walked into this place, I'll never forget. <laughs> we all sat down in these seats. These are the, these are the little, unrecorded, great, classical, high-camp moments of our age. This is true high-camp, Dad. And there were about 2,000 people gathered right there in the heart of Times Square in this big, jazzy, golden-crusted... Uh, they had mother-of-pearl spittoons in the lobby. It was a fantastic movie house. We went in there and sat down. And it was one of those afternoon things where, where everybody sits and looks at everybody else to see who was going to be there. And they have one little part of the movie house 
cordoned off with with white velvet, uh, little white velvet rope. And this this is where the very very official people were, uh, the people who were uh, invited because they were presidents of the movie company and they were representatives of the State Department and that whole business. And we we sat down there, and at at first uh, everyone was a little a little nervous, and then they began to settle down. And the lights were all lit. There were a few coughs. It was supposed to start at 2 o'clock, and everyone's sitting in there in this rented tuxedo, and the chicks with the fur coats, and the guys with the red faces, their faces were getting even redder, you know, their blood pressure was going up a little bit. It's now 20 minutes past 2, and a couple of guys in overalls walked down the, the aisles with monkey wrenches. Apparently, some of the pipes, you know, the pipe the smell in were leaking or something. And so they had to fix it up a little bit. And the guy got up on the stage and said, oh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, we want to welcome you all here to the uh, historic preview of the movie of the future, Smell-O-Vision. And uh, what an unfortunate name. Uh, it couldn't have done worse <laughs> had, they, had, they, had they chosen up size to pick the worst name. Uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, we're having a little difficulty with the equipment. We'll be ready to go in just a few moments. After all, <laughs> you know, this is a historic experiment, and all of us are pleased to be here. Thank you. Well, we waited another half hour, and then the lights went down. We were ready for our historic first few moments. The lights. Can you give me a little romantic music in there, Robert? You've got a little of it there. Just put it up there. Oh, it has to be done. That's all right. That's all right. Just a little romantic music in there. And the lights went down, and then you saw coming on the screen the credits. smell o vision in purple, green, yellow, and orange letters. They were vibrating on the screen. smell o vision presents the first true all-dimensional epic on widescreen in beautiful, shimmering, erotic color. And in true-to-life smelly vision. You don't have to cue it in. Just lay it in the middle of the kid. That's it. Oh, oh, the music just swelled and we sat there. And then the first scene came on. There's a scene in, in Spain, in old Spain, a little fishing village. I sat there for a couple of minutes and all of a sudden my eyes started to water. And, and I thought to myself, well, no, now wait a minute now. When I know doggone well I took a shower this morning. What is this? It's embarrassing. Must be that guy in the front row there in front of me. I said, no kidding. You don't mean to tell me they're getting that that realistic in smell vision that they're telling us, really, how a little fishing village in Spain smells? All them feet going to Holy smokes. And sure enough, I can smell the rotting fish. It's just floating out there at me. And then they cut the, the, the quick cut to this beautiful restaurant. And you see the guy serving this enormous roast beef. In, inexplicably, inexplicably, that's it. You get the smell of this rotten ten cent violet perfume, violet smelling roast. <laughs> we sat there, <laughs> people's eyes watering. Well, that movie went on for seven years. And smell after smell kept puffing out at you. <laughs> you remember that? Well, I saw a smell of vision. You know, that reminds me of other giant unrecorded events.
that I think, uh, unfortunately, historians are missing when they, you know, when they write about the wild times of the 50s and the 60s, that these are the moments that should be put down. The, the, the day that everybody lined up on Times Square to see smell-o-vision or to smell smell-o-vision, whatever you do. <laughs> smell, that, what, what, smell-o-vision, yeah. Now, I'm going to give, I'm going to put you on your, on the stick, on the metal here. Ask you one question. How many of you, you know, I have never run into anybody outside of the guys here at the station who heard what I consider one of the very few truly historic broadcasts that I took part in. Historic in the sense that it described an event the like of which could only have happened at this time, at this place, and in this culture, at this moment in history. How many of you remember a broadcast that I did that I was I just inadvertently was called in to do it? A play-by-play. It was a play-by-play broadcast. It was a live broadcast. It was a remote from Madison Square Garden. And it was one of the most unbelievable orgies, one of the most fantastic events I have ever witnessed in my entire born days. I will never, ever forget it. And I was hanging in a box, and we were the only broadcasters there. That was the great part of it, you see. No, they had televised it earlier, but the television was not at all what was going on. The television was a special show that they had set up down in the center ring. That's all. And you you saw this television show that went on for about an hour. Oh, one of the worst television shows in history. What a flim-flam gang. I'll tell you, that was a a skin game, the likes of which uh, Barnum himself wouldn't have believed had he seen it. He would not have believed it. Well, this television show went on for two hours, and and actually, it seemed like it went on for a hundred years. It was the worst television show in history. But the minute that television went off, the actual, quote, party began. And that's when our broadcast started. We were broadcasting the sights and the scenes that were actually occurring right down there in front of us. And as this stuff began to unfold, it began to be unbelievable, Bob. Totally unbelievable. And, and and I wish somebody had a movie of that of that night. It would have made anything that they did in Rome at their best days look honestly look like a look like a Girl Scout afternoon cookie sale. You know, it was incredible. I will never forget the sight of an internationally known celebrity standing in. A, she was wearing a dress. First of all, it was at least four sizes too small for her. She had gained about 15 pounds, apparently, over the last four days and wouldn't concede it. And so here she was. She looked, she looked like a, well, she looked like a knockwurst in Bermuda shorts. And, 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 and here she is. She has a hairdo that was at least four and a half feet tall. It had windmills sticking out of it and coronets sticking out of that. And this chick, I don't know why she was so pink colored. That may be because of the of where that dress was grabbing her. But she was very pink that night. And she is standing up on a ladder. And she is now hip deep in red cake icing. I, I've never seen anything. It was a giant cake. She is now knee deep in the cake icing. And, and, and there's a great surging throng of people yelling and hollering all around her. And she winds up taking big chunks of cake and throwing it down at the people. And they're throwing it up at her like that. Big chunks of cake. 
And little old ladies were yelling and screaming and chasing each other around the arena. And their pearls were dragging and their minks and their fox coats. And I saw Ben Grower walking around with a balloon. And he's got a confused look on his face. And all of a sudden, a little old dowager ran out of the crowd, grabbed his balloon, and darted away. And he looked like he was going to cry. And, I, and, and, and waiters were running up and down the aisles. And the champagne was supposed to be, you know, part of the ticket. And they wouldn't give it to you. They were selling it. They were hawking it. Ten dollars for a glass of champagne. Ten dollars for a glass. And, they, and, and, and then this fantastic high-level situation. Everybody's in furs and mink. It was top dress. And it, you got engraved invitations. Here, the food arrived. And what is the food? Talk about a flim-flam skin game. The food is a little cart of Nathan's hot dogs with a free plug all. It says, courtesy Nathan's hot dogs. <laughs> and there was one hot dog for every 422 celebrants, all of whom were in their full dress and their box seats and Ginger Rogers and everybody in there. And then out came a little box of Mayflower donuts. It said, courtesy Mayflower donuts. One donut for every 722 people. And they're slugging it out. And then all of a sudden, the kids started to drift in from 8th Avenue. All the juvenile delinquents, the guys with the, with the black jackets that said, uh, you know, that said the 50th Street AC. You know, the, the, the jetliners, the bombers. They all started, and they were picking up the prizes right off the floor and walking out with them. Stealing them right in front of everyone. They get out of my way. And hit the guy. They were hitting Ben Grower. <laughs> and I'm describing this scene. How many of you remember that broadcast? I will award you the brass figgie. Any any listener type who will who will call in and say that he heard this. And what was the occasion? What was the occasion? And, and and I opened it up. I'll never forget. I opened it up and I said it is. It would be just fantastic. And of course you could hear the people yelling and hollering. It would be fantastic if we could pour plastic over this scene, seal it, just run all the air out of it, seal it forever. All these people frozen right in in the in the in the act, frozen just the way they are now. Seal it and bury it out on Long Island, under 200 feet of loam. Just bury it out there. So that 5,000 years from now, when they discover it, this would be an archaeological discovery to rank with all the greatest discoveries of all time. And they would know what the 20th century was like. Why would they know? Here it is. All lined up. All the flim-flam, all the sham, the hoopla. Oh, yes, and now I'm going to really put you on. If, if, if you're out there, any, any guy who can tell me, this is the funniest one. Uh, and the saddest one of all. In the middle of all of this, they had euchred a famous United States senator to give a speech. Oh, yeah, that, that's what made this thing so, 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 so realistic uh, in its evocation of our, of our time. Because it was obviously showbiz, phonus, balonus. It was phonus, balonus all the way down the line, all the way. It was Plagola. It was cheap. It was just ridiculous. It was, it was orgiastic. And yet, all the official people were in attendance. And they were pretending what was happening wasn't really happening. That, I think, is what made it magnificent to be at. 
And so up on the platform, in the middle of all this fantastic uh, uh, hoopla, this cacophony, this this brouhaha, the people yelling and guys stealing and cake they're throwing, guys pouring champagne from the upper deck down on the guys at the lower deck. Everybody's mad. Fist fights were breaking out. And I remember, here's Ginger Rogers. She comes queening it in, you know, and her, her entourage and the guys taking photographs. And, and she gets about two-thirds of the way in when all of a sudden she's furious because another movie star has come in another direction. And they're taking, they all run away from her and they're taking, and you can see her looking very mad. <laughs> and she sits down right in front of us then, and all of a sudden somebody hollers out, You ain't so hot, baby! And she turns around, and her eyes are blazing, and you can see the cake flying, and the guys pouring seven up on each other. Well, in the middle of all this fantastic hoopla, this cacophony, a senator is up on the platform giving a speech that was almost totally unintelligible. And he was a famous U.S. senator. And you see, the whole thing was, was ostensibly in favor of international relations. You know, so They had some big, high and mighty theme that had nothing whatsoever to do with what was going on, which made it even more indicative or symbolic of our society, our time. People are constantly talking about things that have no relevancy to what they're really doing. I mean, all sides, not just America. The only saying, yeah, rotten society. Listen, boy. <laughs> I mean, every last country's got it going, you know. Every last, oh, sure, guys are getting up there and giving speeches in the Kremlin. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with the real life of a guy walking around in the boondocks with a couple of potatoes in his back pocket, you know, who, who, who hasn't seen two Kopecks to rub together since 1915, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, they're giving the speeches, and you've got Johnson giving them, and you've got Mossad Tongue giving them, and you've got, you've got Castro giving them. It's all, you know, it's all life. That's the way it is, you know. And so in the middle of it all, here is this guy. And he is so earnest, and he's talking into the PA system. And, and I'm, I'm watching him. And he, you can see he's got that frantic look of, of, of suddenly realizing that he has made a cosmic mistake. He has been euchred into being a shill for what is obviously a phonus balonus operation. But he's going forward. And he's down there and he's saying, And I say that I think that the spirit of the international goodwill and the cooperation that and the PA specimens are whistling and are hollering and you can hear the feedback and I say I international goodwill I'm pleased to be in the United States and I command the good wishes and the congratulations and he goes off the stand, and nobody's been listening. See, there are about three guys. And right back of him is Duke Ellington's band. And Duke Ellington's band is about to play a gigantic number he has composed especially for this, this fiasco. Well, you should have heard that fiasco. Now, I, I, you know, I, I, Ellington has his good days and he has his bad days. Well, this was one of it. You could hear the guy with the timpani back there. 
and nobody's paying any attention. They're pelting each other with cakes and yelling and hollering and blowing horns. Well, how many of you? I'll, I'll, I'll award you the brass figligi with bronze oak leaf palm. If you can tell me the name of that senator, every time I see him today on the news, on the newsreels, I am still embarrassed for him. I was so embarrassed when I saw him. It was not Johnson, no. No, 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 no. So that's, no, he is very definitely in the news these days. And I am still embarrassed for him, in fact, even more so now. Because he keeps getting that same look these days of having been invited to a party that's confusing him a little bit, you know. <laughs> He's got that look. And, and, uh, and it was a while. I'll, I'll, now I'll award you now. Now, come on, you got two and a half minutes. How many, of you, how, how many of you out there remember? You don't remember this? And I talked about it on the air. I mentioned that he was down there. And I says, here is a senator down there. And he's trying to, oh, and they, oh, and one of the funniest things of all. They got this distinguished conductor. A real conductor. You know, world famous conductor. He's got white hair. And he comes out with his baton. And they had this giant orchestra out there. And, of course, nobody's paying any attention. But the whole thing had fallen apart by this time. They're yelling and screaming, and old ladies' dresses are flying off. If you'll give me a little of that romantic music again, Robert, I remember the scene of this conductor. He comes out, and I'm looking down. I says, this is this world-famous conductor. This is that great conductor. Yeah. And he picks up his baton, and he hits it on his little podium down there. And he starts to conduct. waving his arms and the echo the thundering echo that roared throughout that place you could just hear people and voices and yelling and motorboats going and guys throwing champagne bottles and his poor little orchestra which was playing something like the pathetique finally in the middle of the phrase he quit he just did he was the only one who had the sense to walk out he just waved them off nobody even noticed it and he walked off <laughs> Who was the senator? What was the event that was being celebrated? Oh, they know that? All right, how can they prove they heard it? Well, you can prove you heard it by telling me the name of the senator. And oh, one other thing, as I'm sitting there and I'm looking down, an elephant goes running past me. Not more than eight seconds after they went off the air and the elephant decided he had enough of this jazz. And the elephant takes off, and hanging on the side of the elephant was the late poor Cedric Hardwick. And he's hanging on the side, his pith helmet has fallen off, his glasses are hanging from one ear, and he went galloping out the side door with eight trained dogs after him who had forgotten their training. They're after the elephant. And I said, we are off. We are off, Sir Cedric. And, and Fernandel walked past. He didn't speak a word of English. He didn't know what was going on. And he was dressed like, he was dressed like, of all things, a Spanish grandee. In fact, he was dressed like a Spanish knight. They were celebrating a motion picture that was never even made. And he went stomping past with a funny look on his face. What is this? What is this? These Americans, sir. What's Zuto? Oh, yeah. Oh, may we?
He went past us in the dark. Oh, yeah, it's a Gallimafia parade. Who knows what it is, where it's all going to end, and who cares? Time tied in the affairs of men.